0: Um, shortly after the Berlin Wall collapsed or was torn down or was dismantled I was in Berlin and on some of the remnants of the wall that were still standing I remember seeing a piece of graffito which said Ein Mensch ohne Geschichte Ist wie ein Baum oder Wurzeln, if I've got the German correct, which means a person without history is like a tree without roots. And this has always struck me. Um, I think it's particularly poignant at a time like the ending of the Cold War, Um, where we do not forget in our enthusiasm for a newfound liberation or a new era the roots of our own story, the story of our culture, of our civilization that caused such things to happen. It's reminiscent of a similar saying by the American philosopher George Santayana however you pronounce that who said um, those who fail to learn the lessons of history are bound to repeat its mistakes. And I think this is very true in any context in any tradition that we forget the history of where we're coming from at our peril. And this is one of the reasons I think it's important although for some of us it may not seem directly relevant to emphasize how the Buddha was likewise a product of a certain period in history and his teachings are a response to that situation. Although much of what he said um, has a timeless quality to it, I would be the last person to dispute that, I think that it is constantly nuanced and contextualized by what he is doing in the context of his time. The Buddha, as I would understand him, was a revolutionary, he was a rebel. He stated very clearly that what he was doing um, went against the stream, and by that he meant not just simply the stream of our deep, instinctive human habits, but also against the stream of the culture and the religious beliefs and practices of his day. The Buddha, in many respects, broke with much of what we would consider a sort of default understanding of what religious belief or practice is about. He had no room in his system for a privileged religious object, whether we call that God or whether we call it Atman, or Self with a capital S, or whether we call it some kind of uh, transcendent or more rarefied consciousness. But he sought quite consistently to base everything that he taught, everything he said, on uh, an uncompromising encounter with the suffering of life and this is perhaps the most counterintuitive of the Buddha's teachings, is that he's suggesting that if you want to find a genuine well-being for yourself, for others, you must start by opening your mind, opening your heart, opening your emotions and your senses to birth, sickness, aging, death. We're going to come back to that. This morning I'd like to further elaborate on what is somehow radical about the Buddha's approach and that is by referring to another of his uh, brilliant metaphors, one which I'm sure many of you are familiar and that is the metaphor of the poisoned arrow. <clears throat> let me just read you out the text I'm, I'm afraid it's not in your handout but the reference is the um, it's the Malunkya Putta Sutta the discourse to Malunkya Putta which is uh, Majjhima Nikaya number 63 suppose Malunkya Putta says the Buddha a man were wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, and his friends brought a surgeon to treat him. But the man would say, I will not let the surgeon pull out this arrow until I know the name and the clan of the man who fired it, until I know whether the man who fired it was tall or short or of medium height, until I know whether the man was dark or brown or golden-skinned, until I know whether the man lived in such and such a village or town or city, until I know whether the bow that wounded me was a long bow, or maybe it was a crossbow, until I know whether the bow's string was made of fibre or reed or sinew or hemp, or bark until I know whether the shaft of the arrow was of wild or cultivated wood until I know with what kind of feathers the shaft was fitted whether those of a vulture or a crow or a hawk or a peacock or a stork. until I know what kind of arrow it was whether it was hoof-tipped, or curved, or barbed, or calf-toothed, or oleander. All this would still not be known to that man, and meanwhile he would die. So too, Malunkya Putta, if anyone should say to you, I will not lead the life under the Buddha, until the Buddha declares to me whether the world is eternal or the world is not eternal, whether the world is finite or whether the world is infinite, whether the soul is the same as the body or whether the soul is one thing and the body another, whether after death a tathagata exists or whether after death a tathagata does not exist, that would still, or these things would still remain undeclared by me and meanwhile that person would die. Now we find in this uh, this wonderful passage a number of key elements in what the Buddha was doing. The first, I think, is that what the Buddha is seeking to do through his teaching is essentially therapeutic. Now I mean the word therapy here in the widest possible sense not merely psychotherapeutic, which may be the term, the way we'd use the term today, but therapeutic in the sense that what he teaches leads to a certain healing, leads to the resolution of suffering, leads to a kind of cure in, let's say, our inner confusion, the the sickness or the malady of our soul. He's not concerned, therefore, with presenting a, uh, a metaphysical or a philosophical system that claims to have all the answers to the big questions of life. That's not his methodology at all. In this respect, the Buddha is quite similar in his his teaching style to someone like Socrates or uh, Epicurus, some of the Stoic teachers, who were, in the first case, very much concerned with uh, teaching in a dialogical manner. I mean, Socrates in particular, as with the Buddha. Remember, yesterday we saw that they were pretty much exact contemporaries, neither of them wrote anything down. All of their teaching occurs in dialogue. And again, this passage I've just read out is a perfect example of that. The Buddha's always concerned with responding to the particular uh, questions or the particular conflicts of another person in a particular situation so he's not therefore um, someone who has a set of answers a set of opinions and views that he routinely and systematically imposes in every single place and time but he takes on board the specificity of the situation and the needs and the questions of the particular person who is addressing him. Another example of of this uh, style of teaching would be found in a well-known encounter he has with a man called Vachagota. Vachagota is a character who's not a Buddhist, he's not a follower of the Buddha, but he keeps on showing up and trying to get the Buddha to ask, to answer uh, questions that he has. And on one occasion, the Buddha goes to, sorry, Vachagota goes to the Buddha, and he says, Master Gautama, do you teach that there is a self? And the Buddha says nothing. He remains silent. So after a while, Vachagota says, okay then. Do you teach there is no self? And the Buddha remains silent, doesn't say anything. Understandably, perhaps, Vachagotta stands up and goes away. Once he's out of earshot, presumably, Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, says to the Buddha, Why didn't you say something? And the Buddha replies, well look, if I had said that there was a self, Vachagota would have fallen into the extreme of permanence or eternalism. He would have then very likely have had the opinion that there is something, something essential to my nature or to my being that lasts in some permanent or eternal way some innermost essence or soul but if I had said to him there is no self then he would have slipped into the opposite dead end namely nihilism he would have believed that there is no person there's no continuity there's no consequence of the and I perform on what will occur to me in the future he'll have just Conceived of the person as a kind of random, uh, meaningless concatenation of thoughts and feelings and perceptions and so on and so forth. With no intrinsic meaning or value. Which in Buddhism is called the uccedavada, which means the, the cut-off view. The view in which you just cut off all value or meaning or purpose. We have here, I think, a a good illustration of how the Buddha's teaching, therefore, is situation-specific. As we know from so many Buddhist texts, the Buddha is often talking about anatta, no-self or not-self. And very often that has come to be raised up as some kind of view or opinion that the Buddha uh, believed in. And there are, of course, occasions, many occasions, in fact, where the Buddha emphasizes the importance of recognizing how our body, our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions are not intrinsically me or mine. That they are processes. And that can be a very liberating teaching. But it too can go too far. We have the same point picked up by Nagarjuna, who's one of the great, if not the greatest, commentator on the early canonical tradition, who makes the same point even about permanence and impermanence. He says, just as permanence, to believe there's something in this world that is permanent, can lead to what, what, what he calls the extreme of permanence or eternalism. Likewise, the idea of impermanence can also lead to a sense of nihilism, of meaninglessness. That consistently the Buddha, Nagarjuna are trying to find a middle way, a middle path that avoids the tendencies of the human mind to latch onto one kind of, of opposite, or one kind of position, as opposed to its opposite. This habit, in a way, is kind of built into the structure of language itself. Uh, A and not A, as in Aristotelian logic. It's either X or it's not X. It's either permanent or it's impermanent. It's either a self or there is and not self. And what I think is is characteristic in the Buddha's approach is to consistently seek to find a a course, a way of thinking, a way of responding, a way of acting in which one does not get uh, trapped or caught into this kind of oppositional thinking. And so what's characteristic of the Buddha is not the particular doctrines or or, or views that we often find repeated in many of the discourses, but this, uh, this constant openness to the specificity of the suffering or of the challenge of the situation at hand. And we'll see how this is, I think, very much Born out when we come to look at how he understands the Four Noble Truths. Um, I don't think one can emphasize enough how the Buddha's uh, concern is with process, not with achieving any kind of state, any kind of stasis, any kind of uh, 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 position. However rarified and and, and mystical that position might be. But it's constantly a teaching, a practice, that's about responding appropriately and authentically to what is actually happening in ourselves, in the world, right now. In other words, the Buddha gives us a a set of guidelines, a set of tools, but we have to be very careful not to reify or to uh, make those tools or ideas into fixed things to which we get attached. As we saw in the, in the parable of the raft, the Buddha says that, he's, that he teaches the Dharma as being like a raft. It is there for the purpose of crossing over not for the purpose of grasping. And that's quite difficult to do. I certainly see myself at times getting overly attached to a particular idea or a particular uh, perspective that the Buddha had, rather than seeing it as a tool, as a, a skillful means to live more, uh, honestly and truthfully and hopefully compassionately in the world that is calling for a response. So if we go back to the analogy of Malunkya and the story of the man who has been wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison, here we have an image of um, acute and urgent suffering in the same way that there's this sense of urgency when you find yourself on a riverbank and you have to get across. You don't have the luxury of trying to find the next bridge. As, as it says, the near side is fearful and dangerous and the far side is fear, free from fear. You have to cobble something together as best you can and get on with it. And I think the same emphasis of the urgency of our situation is likewise stated here. But if we are to bring this kind of metaphor up to date, when we talk of, uh, we would perhaps no longer consider this just about a person who has been wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison we might nowadays recognize that our whole um, planetary system our ecosystem the biosphere has been wounded by an arrow thickly smeared with poison it's interesting that the buddha uses the image of a poisoned arrow if it were just an, an ordinary arrow perhaps one would be only suffering a flesh wound and there wouldn't be so much urgency in treating the wound or getting out the arrow, let's say if it had just gone into your arm or your leg. But if it's a poisoned arrow, it means that the danger lies not so much in the actual um, wound made by the tip of the arrow, but by the fact that the arrow has introduced a toxin into the system. Uh, Shantideva, who's an 8th century Mahayana um, Indian Buddhist monk, uh, he uses the same metaphor. He describes the kilesa, what are called in Buddhism the defilements or the negative and destructive features of our inner life, attachment and greed and hatred and so forth, he says that these are also like poisoned arrows. And once they have entered or penetrated into the bloodstream, then very quickly their effect intoxicates or poisons the whole system. I think this is quite an astute uh, psychological insight and we might have observed this in our meditation, that once a particular uh, state of mind, let's say a worry or uh, an erotic fantasy or a fear that when I left home I didn't switch a tap off in the bathroom, whatever it might be, these things somehow invade our nice, serene, breath-watching awareness and suddenly they take over the whole system. You might have noticed this. <laughs> that once this sort of thought or emotion uh, uh, takes root, it spreads through the system. It's, not just an, it does, it's very difficult for it to remain just an, an isolated um, thought. But it has a kind of intoxicating effect. Sometimes... It's so potent, we even feel uh, our heart rate increase, or we start to sweat, or we start to feel physically restless. So there is, I think, in this practice very much uh, an awareness, not just of the fact that certain um, uh, emotions, certain feelings, certain uh, thoughts can distract us from the meditation but actually they somehow infiltrate into the very uh, sense we have of our presence of mind, of our being here, of our sense of being a person. They somehow invade us. They're they're invasive and once they've taken root in that way, they're very difficult to, to get rid of. We might often have had a session of meditation which was going fine, until suddenly we were taken over by this thought and it kind of ruined the rest of the sit. It wouldn't, we can't shake it off. It somehow seized hold of us. Of course, the, the way to deal with this is, is, to, is to see what's going on, to learn from that situation, not to just give in to it but also not to try to sort of forcibly exclude it. This is another part of this middle way approach but on a more practical level. This practice has got nothing to do with repression, nothing to do with uh, denying that something is happening. It's got nothing to do with wishing that things were otherwise. It has very much to do with an honest embrace of what's happening. Even if what's happening is something that's deeply disturbing and uncomfortable, something we'd really much rather were not going on. And I think we have to be very careful when we're doing this meditation not to get caught up in the, in the uh, a- a- attachment and aversion to meditative states of mind. That if we're experiencing something uh, difficult or problematic or, or, or somehow even mildly traumatic, we have to try to open our mind so that we can say, yes, this is what is happening now. That becomes what one is aware of And that becomes the focus of your practice in that moment. Rather than thinking, well if I didn't have this hassle of a thought or a worry going on, then I'd be able to meditate. There should be no situation in your mind, in your life, in which this kind of approach cannot be applied. If you like to think that your practice is only really possible when you've sorted yourself out in your psyche, you've sorted yourself out in your life, and then you can devote yourself to meditation. You're somehow avoiding the far more uh, pressing task of responding and working with whatever situation is occurring. And I think on a retreat like this, this becomes very much the the kind of the ground note of what we're doing it's a kind of radical acceptance a radical way of saying yes this is who I am warts and all and that is okay I'm not on this retreat in order to become somebody else but really to embrace myself so the the therapeutic aspect of the practice that the Buddha emphasizes very clearly here, um, has to do with uh, addressing the primary task of removing the arrow. or we might perhaps say of, if we take this more psychologically, of when the arrow pierces us, the arrow of anxiety, the arrow of aversion, the arrow of fear that we don't let it toxify the system. We see it perhaps as it first arises and as we become more more stable in meditation, as we become more, more calm, more clear, we can begin to notice these things in the very first stirrings, the very first bubblings up of a certain thought or feeling. The problem is that these things usually take over when we get distracted. We're sitting there watching the breath and then for some reason we drift off and we have some sort of just sort of random association of thought or we're sort of slightly dozing and spacing out and the next thing we know we're caught up in some powerful emotion. Shantideva again, who I think is very good on this, says that it's a bit like, um, mindfulness, he says, is like the guardian at the gateway of the senses. But if the guardian falls asleep, or goes off to have a cigarette round the back, then unguarded, the thieves of unawareness or the bandits of unawareness will uh, use that opportunity to enter our mind and steal our inner treasures is the metaphor Shanti Deva, Deva uses. So, in other words, vigilance, attentiveness, presence of mind are not just values in and of themselves, but they also have a kind of protective quality. Uh, they enable us to somehow retain our integrity to retain our our presence of being, our awareness, the cultivation of what we value. Once that vigilance fails or we get distracted, then it's often in those moments that some other instincts or drives or emotions or anxieties or thoughts somehow are able to invade us. the buddha's teaching also as is clear i think from this this metaphor is essentially pragmatic pragmatic in the sense that he's concerned in his teaching that what he is uh, suggesting what he's uh, asking of those who are following him um, is to do something that actually works do something in this practice that actually makes a felt difference and I think this is one of the things that attracts many of us perhaps to the Buddhist teaching is that unlike many other religious traditions it's not primarily a belief system of course in Orthodox Buddhism one often is expected to believe things and I needn't dwell on the fact that we have teachings about reincarnation and different realms and you know mystical powers and so on but at, at, at essence what matters is really does this practice make a difference in my life in other words it's about um, removing something letting go perhaps is a better term than removing letting go through contemplation through awareness of those things that call us, cause us distress and grief and anxiety and trouble that somehow limit us in what we could potentially become as human beings. We also find in this analogy, again very explicitly, that um, the Buddha is um, somehow, uh, he has a sense of humor. Um, There's something satirical in this passage. In other words, he's taking this metaphor and he's teasing it out to absurdity until I know what kind of feathers that the shaft was wounded me was fitted a vulture a crow a hawk a peacock stalk to make his point he wouldn't one might think that he wouldn't have to go to such an extreme <laughs> but I think that's not accidental I think he's in a way um, offering a parody here a, a tongue-in-cheek parody of so much of what passes for theology metaphysics, where people become rather overly um, obsessed with the fine details of doctrine. And of course, a perfectly good example of this tendency of mind is found in a lot of Buddhist thought. (laughs) Uh, Buddhism certainly isn't exempt from this. In its a subsequent tendency to want to have highly precise and exact definitions of every term, of constructing highly elaborate theories of metaphysics, essentially, and paradoxically, or at least curiously, of somehow forgetting what the Buddha himself taught. Let's take for a moment these particular views that he's not willing to make any comment on whatsoever. Whether the world is eternal or not eternal, whether the world is finite or infinite, whether the soul is the same as the body, or whether the soul is one thing and the body another, or after death, a Tathagata exists or after death a Tathagata does not exist. Now the Buddha was quite prescient in the sense that he clearly um, had picked up on key questions that human beings tend to be preoccupied with and today two and a half thousand years later I think it's probably true to say that all of these questions are still as puzzling as they were when the Buddha listed them. But it's the latter two sets of questions that I think are particularly relevant in terms of how Buddhism itself has fallen into the very trap the Buddha recommended that one avoid. Every Buddhist school that I'm aware of has come to a position regarding whether the soul or the mind is the same as the body or whether the mind is one thing and the body another. Most Buddhist schools have adopted a dualism, basically. In other words, that the soul or the mind or the spirit or whatever you call it is one thing and the body or the material existence we have is another. Partly this has had to do with um, enabling a coherent theory of of rebirth or reincarnation. It's very difficult to believe in uh, any continuity after physical death if there is not something factor X, that survives physical death. And it doesn't matter really what we call factor X, although normally it would be called uh, mind or some subtle mind or basically something that is not material, something that is exists independently of the physical body, of the brain, so that when they are burnt in the cremation after we've died um, something is nonetheless able to continue into another existence the Buddha refused to speculate or suggest anything that might fit uh, that requirement and unfortunately the canon is, leaves us with a certain kind of ambivalence, ambiguity because the Buddha does, or at least the Buddha is credited with speaking in terms of continuing after death in some form, in rebirth. And yet at the same time, he say, he's saying to his, uh, to his uh, hearers, his, his audience, uh, don't go there. Don't speculate. Don't get caught up in ideas of whether the mind and the body are the same or different. And the reason he's saying that is because it is irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the actual task in hand of confronting the suffering of the world. It doesn't matter at all whether this is the case or not. The same point is emphasized even more strongly in the next uh, set of, uh, the, the next polarity, that the Buddha refuses to comment upon namely after death a Tathagata exists after death a Tathagata does not exist this is often interpreted um, and again to the convenience of Buddhist dogmatics to mean that the Buddha was referring to whether the Buddha exists after death or not the Tathagata but that I'm fairly sure is not what he meant at all A tathagata, which is one of these words that's given rise to volumes of of commentary and, and, and curiosity, simply means oneself. It's the word the Buddha uses to refer to himself. Sometimes it's translated as the one who has gone thus, or the thus gone one, or the thus come one, which doesn't make any sense at all. And it's, um, again, a misreading, uh, a highly overly literal reading of what the Pali text, the Pali term says. Tata gata. Gata does mean gone, but you find the same ending in many expressions in Pali. You have, for example, avijagata. You have gata, which literally mean one who has gone to ignorance, one who has gone to opinions. For, for some reason that's not translated literally, but in terms of what it simply means, namely an ignorant person or an opinionated person. Gone is just a, a grammatic device. So a tatagata is one who has gone to just that and I think what it means I would translate it as the one who is just so the one who is just so but that's probably an expression that would have been used after the Buddha's death to avoid the Buddha having to say I he does sometimes say I but it looks like um, an honorific An epithet. But in any case um, we also find in in many passages we have uh, in the Udana 6.4 for example you have a situation where the Buddha's um, talking about how there are many Brahmins and ascetics um, in uh, around his park where he's living who are spending their time asking themselves whether the world is eternal or not eternal, finite or infinite, whether the soul and the body is the same or different, and whether the Tathagata exists after death or not. Why would non-Buddhists be interested in a Buddhist theological question? It seems quite clear, and in fact this point is even made by the Pali commentaries themselves, that here, Tathagata just means Atta, oneself. So the Buddha is pointing in these unanswered questions also to the very question of rebirth that is so problematic. He's basically saying whether you exist after death or not, that is irrelevant. It's completely irrelevant. What matters is the poisoned arrow in your mind, in your flesh, at this very moment. So the Buddha seems to be proposing here a very, an almost uncompromising, rejection of all metaphysical speculation. All metaphysical speculation. I think we could possibly add some other ones to this list. Um, One that often comes up in, in groups like this is, well, if everything is conditioned arising, is there such a thing as free will? Okay, we can say whether there is free will or whether there is determinism, don't go there. It's irrelevant. And as we know only too well, minds and intellects far greater than our own over hundreds of years have struggled with this question and they're still struggling with it. Daniel Dennett recently claims to have solved it but if you can understand his book on the subject then congratulations, I couldn't (laughs) (laughs) the point is it doesn't matter in practice we live and we are bound to live as moral beings with an assumption that we have a freedom to choose otherwise to make uh, decisions that have autonomy, and that can lead us to another kind of future. The question about the status of that free choice or the extent to which it's conditioned is irrelevant. And of course another issue we would probably also want to add today is, is there a God or is there no God? It doesn't matter. It really is irrelevant. And the positing of any kind of um, sort of metaphysical entity that we can't really prove, and nor can we disprove, we need to be wary of such ideas. We need to be careful not to get sidetracked by issues that are terribly fascinating, but are really not relevant to what we're doing. If we continue in this same text, the Malumkya Putta Sutta, the Buddha finally, or concludes the teaching to Malumkya Putta with a description of what it is that he does declare. He says, Therefore, Malumkya Putta, remember what I have left undeclared as undeclared, And remember what I have declared as declared. And what have I declared, he says? This is suffering, I have declared. This is craving, I have declared. This is cessation of craving, I have declared. And this is the path. The eightfold path, this I have declared. So he's not just making a kind of sweeping rejection of, of metaphysics or irrelevant theories, but he's counterpointing that to what it is that he does declare. And again we come back to what we were looking at yesterday as the as the city. The, what it is that could be a template for a new kind of culture, the Four Noble Truths. And again and again, this is where the Buddha's teaching resolves. The Four Truths are a bit like the tonic note in a piece of music, where the music resolves. The quartet in C minor means that the music in a classical piece like that resolves itself, in other words, continuously returns to that key note. Da, 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 da. We know where that resolves, that's the tonic. And the four truths, which are in a way an instantiation or an expression of the principle of conditioned arising, are where most, if not all, of the Buddha's teachers continually return and resolve. So this brings us to the first sermon itself. And I'm going to start this now, but continue with it um, in much more detail uh, tomorrow. Do you have the passage called The Noble Quest? Yes, yes. All right, let's have a quick look at that now and perhaps go on to the first sermon more tomorrow. The, the Buddha describes his awakening, um, at least for me, in, in two primary source texts. The first one is called the Arya Paryesana Sutta, the the Discourse on the Noble Quest of which i have translated just a, a short central section and the next time he defines his awakening is in the conclusion of the first sermon <coughs> uh, we also have other uh, te- other passages and one that i'm off is often quoted back at me which i think is margin of 38 where the buddha says that he remembers all his past lives and things like that Um, again I think having looked at the Malunkya Sutta we can put that aside Um, also the fact that that is really a way of looking at the world that's characteristic of ancient India multiple lifetimes and therefore perhaps is not essential to what the Buddha is saying but even if we do take it on board let's say metaphorically I don't find a problem with it because the Buddha says he remembers his being born in this particular form and then in that particular form and what that is in the language of his time is just an illustration of the process of dependent origination of conditioned arising I was born in this particular body in this particular life and then having performed such and such acts I was born in this particular life and so on it's a way of of illustrating Um, a principle, and I think we need not lose sight of that and get distracted by the fact that this is a confirmation of the doctrine of reincarnation. He's using that to illustrate the principle of conditionality. And in that sense, it's entirely legitimate. Now, the passage that I have uh, selected here um, is one that makes it quite clear that what he's concerned with or what his awakening was all about was an awakening to conditionality this passage um, contrasts how people are attached to their aliyah their place or their we could translate it also as foundation um, they delight and revel in their alia, and because they delight and revel in their place it's very hard for them to see idam tanang this ground, let's say idapachayata paticca samuppada that's the key expression what's, what's distinctive about his account and, and you, I'm not going to read it out you, you can read it, it's quite clear is that he doesn't use in this description of awakening any term that uh, is rooted in the verb to know and he never uses a word that we translate as truth. In other words, his awakening is not about coming to some understanding of some truth but his awakening is quite clearly a kind of seismic shift of perspective or an existential uh, adjustment from a life that is concerned with one's position, with one's place, with one's beliefs, with one's opinions, all of the things that in another context he speaks of as one's home, That a person who is obsessed and preoccupied with such things has a great deal of difficulty in recognizing the the fundamental contingency of their existence. The fact that their life is is a flow. It's one condition giving rise to another condition, giving rise to another condition, and this is occurring in what what, what he calls idhapacayata the this conditioned, or we might translate it this conditionality the this is an important word specific things, specific feelings, thoughts, emotions, objects sounds, smells, tastes, touches when the buddha describes the world it's striking how he continuously breaks it down into more and more complex events. He doesn't privilege mind over matter. He doesn't posit there being any kind of ultimate or absolute truth. Although Buddhism, all the schools of Buddhism make this distinction between what is absolutely or ultimately true and what is just relatively or conventionally true. The Buddha not once in the entire Pali canon uses those words. and Yet they've become stock Buddhist opinions. And I think they are a disaster. They split the world in two, into privileging some sort of ultimate reality, be it emptiness or the nature of mind or whatever it is, and then distinguishing that from what is only merely relatively or conventionally true. In other words, the mundane facts of life, of the world, of what we do, our stories and so on. The Buddha never makes those distinctions. It's quite alien to his whole way of seeing things. Instead, he is constantly suggesting an uh, an experience of things that is plural complex, interrelational, impermanent, shot through with suffering, with tragedy, with pain, which is not intrinsically me or mine. The Buddha's awakening is an awakening to this rich, interconnected field of specific events. As opposed to our attachment to some things over others, privileging some things as me and mine, and thereby somehow dismissing or relegating what is not me and mine. And the Buddha's awakening, I feel, at least from this passage, is very much about this radical shift in perspective. Away from prioritizing something, be that the ego or be that god doesn't matter or be that mind and rather opening oneself to the totality of relationships within which one's life is constantly embedded and yet this totality of relationships is constantly in flux and it's constantly calling as for you as a conscious moral person to respond to that world. It's again, it's process, not state. When you read this passage, it might seem fairly straightforward, but I would invite you to reflect on its implications in terms of how one habitually thinks of oneself and the world and one's place in it. And at the end of the passage... He says, were I to teach the Dhamma, in other words, this Dhamma of conditioned arising, and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing. (laughs) Now whether he actually thought that or not, of course we don't really know. It could be a rhetorical device, simply simply pointing to the fact of the radical nature of the Buddha's uh, shift in his experience people are not going to get this and frankly I think this is just as difficult to get today as it was then there's a wonderful passage which I'm going to conclude on here in which he talks about conditioned arising and I may or may not have included it in your handout I'm sorry if I didn't this conditioned arising he says is profound And it appears profound. It is through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people have become like tangled balls of string, covered with a blight, (laughs) tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ill destiny, ruin, and repetition and yet one who sees conditioned arising as we find in Majjama 28 sees the Dhamma and one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising they're the same but that is the keynote that is the, uh, the core insight the E equals MC squared of the Dhamma and as we'll see tomorrow, when, you, when that insight is translated into a form of practice, then it becomes the Four Noble Truths. So thank you very much. And we will um, now have a period of walking meditation until uh, quarter to twelve, when we'll meet back here for...